Hi, Bill Crystal here. I'm joined by the uh, inimitable Mona Charon, uh, policy editor of The Bulwark, longtime friend and writer of so many important things, and with her own podcast, uh, which you all should be listening to, of course, as well. Um, Charlie Sykes is, has the day off. He got his second shot yesterday, which is good news, but had a little bit of a reaction, which I guess is pretty common and is uh, uh, not so much of a reaction that he couldn't write an excellent newsletter this morning, I noticed, but he seems to have bugged out, bugged out of the of podcast duties. So Mona and I are, are finch hitting. How are you, Mona? I'm great. You know what I net learned in the last few months, Bill, that I never knew before? What's that? Which is that the, the British have a different expression. They call it a jab, not a shot. And yes. it makes a lot more sense, don't you think? I mean, shot, it sounds like, you know, something about guns or, you know, whereas whereas jab really captures what happens, right? Yeah, the <laughs> British slang is really kind of fantastic because it, it weirdly combines often, I think, the jab is a good instance of this. It's both more, I don't know, informal is not quite the right word, but as you say, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Colorful, maybe, than the than mm. American slang. Yeah. But, but, then, yeah. It's all, but then it's also... Um, and then also kind of more literary at times. I don't know. It's funny. I, I, I watch a lot of these British, um, you know, police shows and detective yep, shows. Me too. Really? Yeah. They, they, one of the fun things is listening to the different expressions. And they're different, of course, within Britain. I mean, this is something I never really appreciated until I started what I know a fair amount about, uh, about Great Britain. But um, how much the, the regional differences of accent and uh, expression within Britain, which is kind of a small country. I mean, but it's... Uh... Oh, I know. And and this is something I too, you know, I'm a complete fanatic about British shows of various kinds. And so I've gotten an education about the regional accents too, a little bit. And therefore, it was kind of funny when during the first Trump impeachment, um, Fiona Hill became a great star, which she right. deserves completely. Um, but it was interesting to see the American reaction because from, from the American point of view, she had a British accent and that was all they could hear. But from her point of view, when she was telling her story, she has a Northern accent, right? And that right. accent is looked down upon by people in London and elsewhere and Oxford and Cambridge and so forth. And so she mentioned that, that, that having this accent was actually a, a disadvantage um, to advancement in Britain, and Americans just were were saying, "Oh, she's so hoity-toity with that accent." Right. <laughs> yeah. Now the Northern accent. I mean, yeah, in Britain, it's a big. Th it was once a big thing. Maybe less so. I assume less so. Much less so now. Yes. If you wanted to make it, you had to adopt a kind of public school Oxford. Etonian accent or whatever, right? Uh, public school being private boarding school in, in Britain, yet another of the terms that that's different there. And I think you, people who you know wrote memoirs early in the last century often talked about this. I think and and or not abandoning their accent and feeling slightly right. Uh, and if you don't mind going down a tiny further tangent, sorry, I'm no, really no, no. This is a good tangent, this. I think. Yeah. But um, but I I think this is true. Does somebody can double check me? But. You know how um, the aristocrats in in Britain used "ain't" and and so forth in like the 18th century. Right. I read that the reason for that was that they were being raised by nannies who were lower class, and they hardly ever saw their parents, and they just adopted it. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I thought you were going to say something which I've read also, and I'm not sure it's true that somehow the some of what we regard as I don't know, like working class or, or slang, like ain't, is actually aristocratic and vice versa. Yeah, oh, well, maybe it became so after yes. the nannies introduced it to the aristocratic kids in the 18th century, and then it sort of became 
a thing. Yeah, I think the middle class, I guess this is a famous article in the 50s, is it Jessica Mitford or someone? The middle class was sort of more concerned to be proper and precise in pronunciation and grammatical yes. than the upper class. The because upper class, part of being a true aristocrat is that you ignore all these rules that are really for the bourgeoisie, right? Exactly. You don't have to prove anything. Yeah. So what are, what is, I'm sorry, since we're on the topic, we're a minute on British uh, crime and procedural shows, not sure we actually had this discussion. So which is your favorite or which two or three would you recommend to our listeners? Because we're doing oh, a real service. This is more of a public God. service. With all due respect to Charlie, all this talk about politics is nice, but this is a real service if we can recommend. Some, oh, some excellent gosh. Now, now, uh, okay. Yes. Uh, yes. But the thing is, I'm going to forget their names. There was one about, um, maybe Jim Swift will know it. It was, um, a seaside town, not yeah, so that water, was but what Broad was Church. Or? Broad Church. Broad Church. We just so I'm so behind. I'm now watching all these shows. Susan makes fun of my my wife. Susan makes fun of me. All these shows that were popular, you know, five seven years ago. But right, Broad well, Church, I do the same thing. Yeah, yeah Broad well, Church cares? is really excellent. I've got to say, yes, very yes, yeah. Hinterland. Have you seen that one? That's also uh, no. That's gloomier. Um, I think Northern England, sort of very good regional accent. But I think it was. It seemed. I think it was on around the same time as Broad Church. Very sim- similar, I would say. Kind of the moody detective. His, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. His, and uh, um, yeah, but uh, really uh, but anyway, I, and I just I do watch pretty much as many British shows as I possibly can. You know, so. You know, not just the not just the police procedurals, but you know, all of them. You know, Downton Abbey and the rest. Yeah, you know, even though those. that was pretty silly, but it was still entertaining. <laughs> There's a good Australian show I recommend, Janet King. It's there are three oh. series of it. She's a, um, a you know a detective, and and uh, it's kind of a, the Austra- a little bit more courtroom scenes, that kind of thing. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, sort of interesting to see what the Aust- how the Australian system works, and and well done, and and sort of uh, very you know, gripping, and uh, I guess three seasons. But again, like the like the British shows or like American shows, I guess too. Now it builds up. You know, it's a this sort of a contained plot for each for each uh, episode or every two episodes, but it, it also builds upon itself, and so you're supposed to watch the whole. Watch the whole thing. I, I'm in awe of these writers for keeping the tension going. It's uh, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> they can it, keep you interested. Real. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, it's it's. I mean, this is such an irony. Paul Cantor makes this point, and actually, I did a couple of conversations with him about this that people can list, watch, and listen to on conversations with Bill Crystal. Paul teaches uh, uh, English uh, literature, Shakespeare originally at UVA, but also uh, popular pop culture. And I mean, he was an early. He early on saw how high quality TV was becoming, and mm-hmm. the utter transformation from TV in our generation is the lowest prestige, you know, right medium to really the best, maybe I guess in terms of visual entertainment. I mean, you know, and, and partly because of, I guess the change in the business model or of cable, which allowed you to to have ten hours of a plot instead of you know, 26, 22 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever the real length of an hour series is. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I know that listeners will probably, you know, roll their eyes, but I, I am with Sarah uh, in uh, praising the French village, which is one yeah, of the best things I've ever Yeah, we have resisted that because like 165 <laughs> episodes or something. I don't it's know. a lot of episodes. Yes, it's a lot of episodes, but it's one of the best, one of the finest things I've ever seen on television, I have to say. Is that um, right? Okay. Yeah. Do have to, yeah. My teacher, Harvey Mansfield, likes it very much. And it's also a good way to practice your French, I guess, if you don't want to just depend on the subtitles. So yes, or, or yes, with the subtitles, yes. maybe the best way, because you can then check that you're actually understanding what they're 
saying how is it it's set i mean it's in vichy france or in nazi it's, on, it's in france? a village it's oh. in a village that's right on the border be- between occupied france and, and vichy france right, right. and um there's a river that's the border oh. um and uh and it's um it's just this this fantastically uh, interesting exploration of how people cope with the compromises and the and the necessities, um, and uh, it it does have a lot of current relevance. And as some of us have said, um, you know, you you could certainly understand people who felt the need to collaborate um, when the alternative was having your life endangered and certainly your livelihood endangered. Um, what in our time, if it just means getting some mean tweets <laughs> or losing your seat, <laughs> and even still people have no courage, uh, it's less easy to understand. Well, let's yeah, let's talk about that, I guess, since that's a good <laughs> segue there. That was very professionally done. You should have your own podcast. You know? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Beg to differ. With- <laughs> yes. Listen, who's your guest this week? Do you have someone lined up? Yeah, on? Corey Shockey. We're going to discuss the uh, Biden's uh, administration's approach to Iran and the Iran deal and all of that. Oh, great! No, in front. Yeah. yeah, she was. Uh, she's a very interesting person, lively. That'll be a good, yes, a good, a good, a good, a good uh, show. I'm sure. So that's something else to look forward to this week. So, I mean, we'll we'll get to Cuomo and we'll get to other things, but uh, let's begin with just the obvious, which is the kind of somewhat amazing, I would say, continued captivity of the GOP to Trump after losing after January sixth after everything. Right? It seems not yep. to have finished at all. What do you think? What do you make of that? And- it's- it's 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 abs- you know we we have to every now and then pinch ourselves and say that this is so bizarre um it is how many weeks now eight weeks or whatever it is since the insurrection at the capitol and if you go back and you remember what people were saying in the immediate aftermath of that horrific thing um you know everybody including kevin mccarthy the majority leader uh, the minority leader of the uh of the house and uh, and all, everyone was saying this is awful and, you know uh um uh, lindsey graham said i'm out tried to be helpful but this is it and uh you know the wall street journal editorial board was calling for him to be removed and impeached immediately and national review said you know Anyway, everybody uh, was unanimous that this was finally the thing that had caused the dam to break and everyone to agree that this man was a danger to the country. Um, fast forward, uh, and now we have, um, you know, of course, um, members of Congress who voted to impeach being sanctioned by their local Republican parties in their home states. Um, you have Mitch McConnell voting to uh, voting not to convict, though he made that great speech afterwards. Uh, and but then he appeared on television a couple weeks later and was asked if Trump were the nominee in 2024. If Trump, the man who you just said endangered the republic, made war on another branch, basically. Um, would you support him uh, for re-election? And he said, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, we have to stop and say this is so beyond anything we have ever seen in American life that we have to keep reminding ourselves this is nuts. And this is what I find hard to understand about people who have been in the Republican orbit 
all of their lives and who have been intellectuals in particular, right, who have seen their role as being to, to influence the Republican Party and to influence public policy through the Republican Party, who are sort of pretending that things are sort of more or less normal now when they're anything but normal. You have one party that is completely in the thrall of Trump and Trumpism. And um, and as long as that's the case, that entire party, not just Trump, that party is a threat to the American system. And those people cannot be permitted to wield power. Yep, I'm, I'm totally with you. I mean, I guess they would say some of the ones who are not, you know, simply in denial, but maybe a more complicated form of hopefulness would say, well, it, it can, we can return gradually. The Republicans and conservatives, conservatism can return gradually to normalcy. It's only a month after Trump has left office, six months, 12 months from now, it could be different. Let's see what happens in, in Congress and in 2022 in the primaries. And I mean, obviously we would like it. I mean, I would be very happy and we're in fact doing things both privately and, and in terms of encouraging people and certainly in, in our, you know, other efforts at defending democracy together to, uh, to help Republicans willing to stand up to Trump. But you just, every time you think, and this is what strikes me so much, every time one has thought, well, okay, finally, you know, they're going to break the spell. <laughs> yeah. They don't. And I don't know why we think it would happen now. And as JBL keeps on saying, it's the voters. And and there's a good piece in the Post today, pretty interesting. It's not a, quite a representative sample when you, it's a kind of panel poll, but people, they really went and looked at these political scientists at, at MAGA Republicans, which is about half of Republicans really at yes. this point, and how firmly uh, uh, they support Trump, how entrenched their support is, uh, and how serious it is. I think this is something that the sort of people who wish the party to get beyond Trump don't want to think too hard about that, you know, well, they, they've sort of got Deluded and they, they got caught up in the excitement, but the the fever will break. You hear that a lot, um, and I've used that I'm sure myself many times. And the, the bubble will burst. It, but maybe it's not. It, it doesn't. It's not. A, maybe it is ultimately a fever, but it doesn't seem to be breaking. And in fact, one of the interesting th data points in this piece, in this uh, op-ed in the Post, which people can take a look at, is um, the you know it's not. These are people who are pretty well educated, pretty middle class. The Trump supporters are not you know, as uh, they're not the yahoos that people want to pretend they are. I mean, some are, right. obviously, but, uh, and, and so they sort of weirdly, they know a lot. They have arguments to back up what they're saying. Someone made this point to me. He used to do talk radio. He's not, not in our circles now, but uh, the other just chatting, catching up personally a week or two ago, that it's a mistake to think of these people as not knowing anything. They actually know a lot because they listen to talk radio. They read things on Facebook. They read, you know, things within their, they watch Fox and OAN. So they have arguments, which actually makes it harder than to dislodge them. If people just didn't know anything, got suckered by some silly, by the president of the United States saying over and over, hoax, 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 then okay, fine. You could get some information to them and they might say, yeah, I guess it's not a hoax, but they have a lot of quote information. It's just very deceptive information. And then when you get into conspiracy mindedness, the information that seems to cut against them, is just part of the conspiracy. So I think people have underestimated, and I, I would be plead guilty to this too, the difficulty of dislodging people from the kind of the, 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 the bubble they're now in or the echo chamber they're now in. Um, so it does remind you of the 
Mark Twain quote, which I think is a real quote, um, <laughs> which is, it's, it's not what they don't know that's the problem. It's what they know for sure that just ain't so. Yeah, that's a good one. That is good. Um, of that in this context. And, yeah. and, you know, one of the, one of the items in that poll, and again, these are MAGA supporters. This is not a poll we should stress of the Republican Party in general. Um, but among the, and it is about 50% of the party, as you say, though. So, and about 70% of these people not only support Trump, not only would love to see him run in 2024, but believe that he should remain in office beyond two terms. 70% hmm. said that. Hmm. So this is a, this is an anti, by definition, an anti-democratic, anti-constitutional attitude um, that they have. And, um, you know, you're absolutely right that, you know, it's the voters and the voters want this. Um, but who influences the voters, right? I mean, they get their information from from Fox and from the online websites like the Federalist and the others. I mean, they don't get their information from nowhere. And yes, there's a lot that circulates on Facebook and Twitter and various other, you know, sort of uh, informal ways, but they get legitimacy when those conspiracy theories and so forth are picked up by um, so-called mainstream outlets that they see on TV. Um, it's not enough to just have it circulate online. Um, it has to be ratified. And it is ratified, not just by by um, Fox, although that's bad enough. Tucker Carlson is uh, is very influential, Laura Ingram, all those people but by Republican politicians and office holders who, again, give it another layer of legitimacy. And, you know, I, I watched a tiny bit, thank God I didn't have to watch very much, but I watched a tiny bit of the CPAC thing. And there was Mike Lee, right, giving a speech about the Constitution and threats to the constitutional order. And he's giving a talk at C CPAC and what should Mike Lee, who I used to think was a serious person and who tries to portray himself as such, I think he's written three books about the Constitution. His father was the Solicitor General under, I guess, Ford or um, maybe Reagan. Yeah, beginning um, of Reagan, I think. Reagan, okay. Um, so he has a distinguished pedigree and so forth. And you would, you know, Mike Lee was speaking to a crowd of people who all believe that the election was stolen <clears throat> and this has undermined their faith in democracy itself, all based on lies. And does he go to CPAC and try to dispel the lies so that we can have a healthier polity? No, he doesn't even address it. It's like it doesn't exist. And so I don't see how you can take someone like Mike Lee seriously as as an intellectual, as a lover of the Constitution, or even frankly, Bill, and this is relevant to you and me, even as a conservative, rightly understood, right? Mm -hmm. um, because he is not attempting to conserve the very thing, the, the American founding, the whole system that we all uh, supposedly revere. Because you cannot, at the one on the one hand, wink and nod about a huge lie that is undermining respect for democracy among one of the major political parties um, and, uh, and, and claim to care about 
democracy, legitimacy, the American experiment. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. And the failure of Republican elected officials and conservative, you know, elites to stand up to the big lie uh, and to stand up to Trump and Trumpism has been a huge problem. Even the ones who haven't echoed it, and a lot have, uh, just the failure to, 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 as you say, to confront it when yep. you have a real chance, whether it's writing the Wall Street Journal or, or speaking on the floor of the Senate or speaking at CPAC where you're going to get national attention. Uh, that's itself a huge problem. It sort of implicitly suggests, well, it's a little, maybe these views are a little odd or a little off, but they're not a serious problem, but they are a serious problem. Why do you think, I am sort of, been, this I've been struck by, I wouldn't, if you had told me 10 years ago, you know, the Republican Party could go in a pretty wacky direction in foreign policy. It could go Buchananite or isolationist. It could go protectionist. Mm -hmm. It could go uh, you know, I don't know, some really, you know, flat tax or something like that. Um, even it could go, it would go very anti-immigration. All those, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have liked it. I would have been surprised at how much it might've happened. You know, I wouldn't have thought it would happen, but I would have realized it could happen. Obviously you could see those strains very visibly. I am a little amazed by the willingness to go just authoritarian, to really go anti-democratic. Yeah. You know, it, 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 both among the elites but and among the, the voters, obviously. I mean, the willingness to just take that extra step. And this is why this big lie is somewhat different from the other big lies, right? The other lies. The lies about immigration are damaging and, and, and should be refuted. But this is a big lie about the actual political system and constitutional system. And is that, what, 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 I mean, has, has that surprised you too? I mean, just, I, I guess yes. I would have thought there would be more more attachment to the constitutional order in some sense or other and to, you know, the political order that uh, of America against es the, the Trumpist assault. Especially coming from a political party whose leaders are constantly beating their breasts about being constitutionalists, right? I mean, yes. that was their big selling point. And in fact, that was at least part of the supposed message of the Tea Party, which I now think I vastly overestimated <laughs> the sincerity of. Um, but they supposedly were, you know, wanting to return to a, a more, um, uh, an older version of the constitutional order and so forth, and uh, with their tri cornered hats and whatnot. Um, yeah, the uh, the attraction of authoritarianism, I don't know, Bill. I mean, initially, I thought maybe it was a, a kind of a response to Islamic radicalism, which frightened them really badly, frightened a lot of people that therefore, you know, and, and one of the things that Trump would say um, during the campaign, and if you recall, in 2016, we weren't that removed in time from a lot of the outrages of ISIS being on the news, you know, people being burned in cages and, and beheaded right. and all the rest of it. And, and Trump got up there and said, you know, you have to be vicious. You have to be as, you know, you have to be terribly vicious and you have to commit war crimes. And people said, yeah, you know, I, I, that's what I want because I'm scared. But at that moment, I sort of understood it, but now that that sort of threat has receded and um, um, we don't really face an external enemy, um, I'm I'm perplexed. And I'm, I'm noting, again, going back to what they talked about at CPAC, 
that now it almost seems like there is a performative quality to their invocation of foreign threats. So they talked a lot about the dangers from China. And, you know, I have been a hawk about China my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, China's an evil regime, okay? But the way they were presenting it, it was almost as if they don't they don't have any plans for how to confront china but but they they just wanted their audience to feel a sense of threat and i guess i i don't understand it i guess it's partly you know the the drumbeat of talk radio and the rest who have been who have found that ratings you can get better ratings from fear and hatred than than anything else, I, but I'm 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 reaching. I'm really at a, at a loss, and uh, I do note that there's a story in the paper today about efforts to improve civics education in the U.S. and and maybe that'll help. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I hope, but it's it is some of it is not. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's education, but it's it's not. They don't know that we have three branches of government. That's not really the problem, or that no. you know, when the Constitutional Convention was, is that they yeah they've let the fears and the anxieties overwhelm the attachment, I would say, to to the liberal, small L, liberal and conservative constitutional order. And um, and that can happen, obviously, and has happened in history and even in our own history at times, For but usually for a short period of time. And, and again, I do then come back to Trump. And I think this is where people who criticize us, frankly, for you know worrying, he's too obsessed with Trump, are just wrong. I mean, we've not, when you have a president, a president reinforcing this every day in a demagogic way, the fears, the anxieties, the hatreds, and, and and not reinforcing, to say the least, any reverence for the rule of law, the constitutional order, but quite the opposite, actually, just showing, having an attitude of scorn to it. Four years of that, you know, we all warned the four years of this would have, would do damage back in 2015, 2016. <clears throat> and I think it has done a lot of damage. I guess I, I, that's what, and yes. I, I think, therefore, these debates about what, where, what do we do now? I think it would be great if the Republican Party could, frankly, come back to the Republican Party of 2014 or 15 or jump mm-hmm. forward. Nothing ever goes backwards in history, but jump forward right. to a new Republican Party that was whatever, had some compromises on policy on certain issues, but was not in this fundamental way Trumpy. I mean, maybe we should stop using the term Trumpy, which makes it too much sound like it's a, about a person or about an affect or attitude. Mm-hmm. It is about the kind of the, the real authoritarianism. Authoritarianism. Absolutely. So deep, though, that's so deep. That's what's so distressing and, uh, and, and worrisome. And it's why I've argued, you've argued why, why you and I supported Joe Biden voted for him in 20, uh, 20, because you just couldn't afford four more years of Trump. And I'm afraid, and as you said earlier in the show, and I've said, uh, we, we uh, hard to see we can really afford, you know, a Republican, we certainly can't afford Trump again in 2024. And I'm not sure the Republican candidate's going to be that much more attractive from our point of view in terms of fundamentals about the rule of law, the constitutional order, uh, you know, fixing Truth. the system we're in, uh, civility and decency and so forth, then than Trump. So, I mean, for now, uh, here we are. And this has caused something of a debate among never Trumpers. Are we, uh, should we be, you know, try to help the Biden administration be as good as it can be for now? Should we work with Democrats? Should we just stick, stick with being Republicans? And, uh, and uh, I wrote some couple of things on this. You've written on this. Jonah Goldberg takes a different point of view. Matt Lewis has a piece today, which is an intelligent, I think, you know, summary in a way of the debate. Uh, he's kind of on Jonah's side. 
Let's talk about that for a minute. I think our, our listeners might be interested. They can make up their own mind, obviously. And and we yeah. published, incidentally, on the Bulwark, Joe Walsh saying third party, and I think uh, Christian Vandenberg, I think, implying more, let's continue to fight within the Republican Party, which and God knows we're also interested in continuing. So I, I think there's a totally respectable diversity of views on this, uh, mm-hmm. kind of practical judgment, really, not a, not a you know, principled one. No set, I mean, not that that's a firm distinction, but it's a it's a practical judgment of the balance of forces and where one can do the most good. And for now, it's how urgent how urgent the situation is, or how much one can sit back and sort of wait for the party to fix itself and stuff. But anyway, I've talked too much. So it's give, no, give me no, no. Sense of where that whole debate you, is. You um, got the whole thing rolling with a really. Um, brave and and uh, and 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 interesting uh, suggestion that we think about you know possibly you know trying to help Biden and um, and that and that set off a, a good rollicking debate which is which is great um, I here's here's my uh, one of my thoughts which is that when people say I could never become in any way cooperative or allied with the Democratic Party because I'm devoted to principles, I'd have to say, but where in the Republican Party is the room for principles? Is it is it is it hospitable to principles right now at all? I mean, <laughs> um, the principles are a joke in the Republican Party. Um, so um, conservative principles, all principles, constitutional principles, it's it's a joke. So that's that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that um, I look. I I would echo something that our colleague and friend Charlie Sykes says, which is you know having having resigned and left one group, you don't necessarily want to sign up with another. And and I understand that, and I and I agree um, that you you know one's loyalties should be. Um, only very reluctantly uh, bestowed because people will disappoint you, parties will disappoint you. On the other hand, um, I I recall, and this is kind of an interesting perspective, um, that back during the 2020 campaign, when it became clear that people like Republican voters against Trump and other never Trump people were attempting to help Biden get elected, um, there were people on the left who said, this is bad. We don't want this because those people are going to infiltrate the Democratic Party and bring a conservative perspective, and they're going to—they're. We don't want that perspective in our party. And um, and I'm, you know, when you look at the results of the 2020 race, I think it's undeniable that disillusioned Republicans helped Biden win in significant um, ways in, in in key states. Had it not been for the defection of Republicans in in suburbs and key states, Biden might not be president right now. And you know the 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 fact is, it's not crazy to think that if some disillusioned Republicans decide to at least temporarily or maybe even for longer become affiliated with the Democratic Party, they might be an important constituency that the Democratic Party would have to grapple with. I'm not saying the, the Democrats would be great at it. I mean, look at the way they're treating Joe Manchin. You know, they're they're some some Democrats are really irritated that they have to deal with the likes of Joe Manchin. But when you're a big tent uh, with a lot of different groups, um, you do have to make accommodations. And arguably, you know, the Democrats would be in much better shape. Um, 
when it comes to winning elections, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have to rely on you know a few thousand votes in key states if they were a little more moderate on certain questions. And so, um, you know, it, it's just an interesting thought experiment to say maybe you know the injection of some former Republicans into the Democratic Party would move the party in a, in a better direction, both for policy and, and for the Democrats' electoral prospects. Right. And I would add, and, and Biden, and the key point for me, I mean, it's not sort of, I think you make a very strong argument there, but it's not as if we're just randomly choosing two parties, like, you know, from a standing start and which one right. do, we, do we think we can help a little bit more with, which is closer to us. One is Biden's the president. He'll either succeed or not. Uh, the Democrats are in charge right now of, of, of both the House and the Senate. So I do feel that sort of ignoring that or just writing that off is really a little crazy and, and kind of irresponsible because it kind of matters that he's a better rather than worse president in certain ways. And even if you regard yourself as limiting the damage he does in certain areas, it's important to limit that damage. And so, especially after four years of Trump. So I, I think that yeah. I guess- I think people like us have a sense of urgency about the moment that people who have a little more relaxed attitude towards kind of, well, I don't I don't like the uh, Trump Republicans, but I don't like the Democrats either. So I'm just kind of sitting it out. I do think you mentioned 2020. For me, that's really the decisive uh, difference, actually, in this little debate among never Trumpers. Um, the people who aren't where we are, if I could say, the people who are very skeptical of working with the Democrats at all, didn't in fact work with the Democrats in 2020. They didn't vote for Biden over Trump. Uh, Matt Lewis interestingly voted for Biden, he says, in a primary to try to get a better Democratic nominee, but then right. in the general election. Fine, I, I never tell anyone how to vote, but I don't know. Did the, does, I, here's my question for Matt Lewis and Jonah, who I assume are, and Goldberg, who I assume are loyally listening to this uh, Charlie's podcast <laughs> here. Um, <laughs> Do, do they think that was right? And this is a serious question, not a rhetorical one. Do they think it was the right decision, the right choice, not to choose between Biden and Trump in 2020? Now, of course, I don't know. Jonah lives in D.C., I think, and I don't know where Matt lives, but no one vote matters. I understand all that. It's symbolic. But if mm -hmm. you voter in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or something, I just don't see how people can sit here on March 2nd uh, who have the general view of Trump that, out, of what, out of authoritarianism and nativist populism and so forth that 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 we have and that Matt and Jonah have and say, well, it didn't matter. I was right to sit out 2020. That it's not the country's not better off to have Joe Biden as president for the next four years than Donald Trump. That's what they're saying. That's what they said yeah. when they refused to choose in 2020. That's what they're saying today by an effect carrying forward that refusal to choose. And again, I, as you say, this is all temporary and no one's signing up for any party forever and, you know, at all. I mean, honestly, I can imagine voting for a Republican in, 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 in all kinds of elections over the next several years. But mm -hmm. as a matter of general attitude, the kind of, uh, well, I just, the Republican Democrats, I just, they're going to go bad. Even if they're not so bad right now, they're going to get worse. Mm -hmm. Well, is, mm -hmm. that fatal, is, is that kind of fatalism warranted? But again, it's the sense of urgency and then the sense of the 2020 and the judgment, I think, of the 2020 choice that brings it home, brings home the difference for me. But anyway, it's an interesting debate. Yeah, no, that's... That, that, can I, and, um, yeah, look, look, can I just, can yeah. I just respond to what you said? Because I, I think that's, that's so, so well put um, that, uh, you know, to, to, to frame it as, you know, is it better 
um, to uh, to sit it out and to say, no, I, I, I can't choose between Trump and Biden. They're equally unacceptable outcomes. I mean, that's really what you're saying. And, and that is a, that is a, um, that's a position that I, I could not possibly take. And I would go a step further and just say that for the sake of the country and the sake of the, the, the kinds of, um, the kind of stability that I think we want, uh, for the nation, I think it's also incredibly important that Biden succeed, right? And I'm not sure how many like never Trump people would say that, but I think if Biden is a failed president, then you have the opportunity for even more kind of radicalism to take hold on the left. And certainly the right is very radical already. And um, so for the sake of our of our uh, country's stability, I think it's actually very important that Biden be that Biden be successful and be perceived to be successful. No, I think that's well said, and I think it's a, probably a good thing to to end on. We've gone uh, long enough. We've taxed our listeners' patience since we're replacing the irreplaceable. Trump. Exactly like, the we irreplaceable. Need talk, we need to talk about Mario Cuomo. Uh, Mario Cuomo. That shows my age. Um, uh, <laughs> Andrew. Andrew Cuomo and how horrible he is, and how bad a lot of the wokeness we're seeing is. But whether that's better fought than by helping. Old-fashioned liberals uh, joining with old-fashioned liberals in that fight are saying, no, we can't even possibly be Democrats because look at Andrew Cuomo. I mean, that's so interesting. And he's so much in the news. Say a word. You've you followed him. You've you followed New York politics. And say a word about that, though. We're, we're- yeah. So Andrew Cuomo um, has had lots of troubles in his career and uh, and has been the subject of earlier corruption investigations and so forth. And now he was, uh, before this whole Me Too thing erupted in the last uh, week or two, um, he was subject of, uh, of some very, very harsh stories about his handling of the coronavirus. And, um, and that's, you know, that's, he should be he should be closely uh, uh, followed. He he should be held accountable for for whatever bad decisions he has made. But I would just note this: that um, a number of the people who were most harsh about Cuomo have been his fellow Democrats um, in uh, in the legislature. They've been attempting to um, pare back some of the power that they gave him to cope with the COVID emergency. Those are Democrats attempting to do this. They are they are attempting to hold him accountable. Now, maybe not to the degree that one would like or whatever, but I mean, it does stand in stark contrast to the kind of Martinets in the Republican Party who just say, whatever the dear leader says, you know, we will snap to attention. So I think that's actually the way things are supposed to work is that uh, parties are supposed to discipline themselves. And, um, uh, and so I, I don't, you know, I, I think we'll see what happens to Cuomo. It wouldn't surprise me if he were even forced to resign, but we'll see. These days, apparently, the, the way people handle scandal is just to um, brazen it out uh, rather than to uh, rather than do the profumo, speaking of showing your age, right? The profumo right. way, which was to um, retire from politics and devote yourself to charitable work. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but in any event, I do note a difference there that at least some Democrats have been willing to call out Cuomo, and that's to the good. Yeah, it is to the good, and we can be—I think we can be anti-Trump and anti-Cuomo. And uh, <laughs> but luckily, uh, Cuomo is not president; and didn't run for president. And and as you say, a lot of Democrats seem to be willing to to call him out. And 
the broader, there are a lot of other questions that we could discuss and we will discuss. And you've discussed, of course, uh, so many times on, on your podcast and, and have written so well about, about wokeness and how to fight that and uh, how to ally with classical liberals to fight that and also fight conservative versions of wokeness as well as left-wing versions of wokeness. But we will leave that for another time. And um, so there'll be many other t- occasions. One good thing about the Bulwark is we can write about these things. We can talk about them on more than one podcast, uh, yours and Charlie's. We can discuss them. Mine is live. called Beg to Differ. Sorry to interrupt. Mine is called Beg to, Beg differ. to differ. And people need to listen to it. And I think people are listening to it. The numbers are great. And uh, it's really been a, a great, that and Charlie's podcast have been great. And you also need to watch if you can. Uh, you need to join Bulwark. You shouldn't need to. I shouldn't say that. You should join Bulwark Plus, which gets you all kinds of additional benefits, including the live stream that's now become a regular Thursday night uh, feature of uh, a surprising number of people's lives, I've got to say, but and uh, yeah. but, but a worthwhile feature, right, Mona? Uh, oh, it's they're great. They're, it, we, it gives us a chance also to interact with our members. And, you know, we, we're in the chat. Those of us who are not on the live stream in any particular evening, we're usually in the chat talking with, uh, with our members. So it's fun. So do join Bulwark Plus. Do join the live stream Thursday night. Do listen to Beg to Differ and Charlie's podcasts and read the Bulwark and all that. And uh, thank you for joining us today. And I believe, unless this little reaction uh, minor kind of, he said, achiness uh, to the second shot persists, the irreplaceable Charlie Sykes will be returning tomorrow for this podcast. <laughs>